Welcome to Insights as a Service, episode six. This week, I'm joined again by Nick Phillips. G'day, Nick. Thanks for having me. And uh, Nick, of course, you are, for those that don't know, head of business for Lightwire, the Trans Tasman wholesale and general telco provider of choice. Always with the uh, aggressive advert up front, like it. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, this is the uh, fortnightly episode where we go through some news and events um, and then maybe uh, put together some sort of coherent opinion on something. And uh, today that something will be NPS, but I won't jump ahead. We will come back to that. Now let's kick off with some news and just for something different, Nick, I reckon we start with something you would like to discuss. Yeah, I saw uh, this week in the news that Telstra has set a new record uh, for fines after paying the ACMA, which is the Australian Communications and Media Authority, two and a half million in penalties for failing to upload uh, customer whether their customers wanted to be uh, have unlisted or silent phone numbers to a central industry wide database called the Integrated Public Number Database, and because we're in telco, IPND. Um, IPND, amongst other things, because no one would have ever heard of that probably outside of our industry, uh, is used by triple zero uh, and, and a month of other you know, government and law enforcement agencies uh, to help people in emergencies, to locate them, uh, send out emergency services alerts for you know warnings of floods and bushfires, etc. Uh, so pretty bad stuff to get wrong. Uh, Telstra, in their in their wisdom, did self-report the breach, uh, and we're very quick to fix the the issues. I read, um, but during that time, people's safety was at risk. But really, goes to highlight the need for having someone uh, totally owning that compliance space uh, in your business, particularly as you you grow and scale and have more and more um, bureaucracy and uh, reporting obligations imposed on you. That's it. Like I think for people uh, scaling up, for people working in entities, MSPs or telcos that are scaling up and um, really working in that voice space, just understanding the compliance risks that that exist. But you said that's a a, a record. Two point five million sounds like a pretty low record. Was it a, a a record for a fine in that sort of category, or or surely not a record overall? Not a record for fines as far as fines go, uh, but a record for that category of fine. Um, for, I guess, a bit of background context there, um, a similar model, we believe, is, is going to be introduced uh, to New Zealand um, as well in the, in, the, in the coming years. So we expect um, more and more New Zealand telcos to also uh, potentially fall into that trap, though I don't imagine... Uh, we get to the same scale as $2.5 million in fines uh, should any New Zealand telco stuff up. Well, I mean, who knows? Who knows what sort of uh, regulatory environment they're going to create for us to work within NNZ. Um, let's kick on to um, Hyperfiber Chorus News. Uh, in New Zealand, Hyperfiber, as, as we know, um, we do go on about Hyperfiber a bit much, but uh, with its low cost, eight gig speeds, it, it seems worth talking about. It's um, certainly um, better than um, anything that's previously previously existed in New Zealand, and certainly uh, faster and lower cost than anything available in Australia. So, in Chorus's words, just as a as a recap, Hyperfiber is our premium product offering blazing fast speeds targeted. Early ad- at early adopters, gamers, and those with massive broadband needs like the content creators and businesses. Uh, we are excited to announce the expansion of 2, 4, and 8 gig speeds. So the big news piece here basically is 
2, 4, and 8 gig speeds in more places in New Zealand from the 2nd of May 2022. Uh, they are going to offer 2 and 4 gig speeds in all UFB 2, 2 plus, and RONS areas. Big uh, finding for me in the last week or so is that I now know that RONS means rest of New Zealand. So there you go, learning. Just another acronym. Uh, yeah, yeah, we could always do with more. So uh, basically, there's virtually, well, there's very few places you won't be able to get two or four gig hyperfiber symmetrical speeds from the 2nd of May, 2022. Eight gig though, eight gig is going into 18 new exchanges across Auckland and Wellington, plus two other areas, those being Blenheim and Palmerston North. So certainly not as widely available, but uh, becoming uh, more available in more metro areas, I would say. And if, if you caught last time's news as well with those um, potential tail extensions launching around the same time, uh, we may see more and more carriers offering that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, maybe it really is going to be from May onwards with tail extensions and um, wider availability in terms of tail access. We're going to see hyperfiber start to really be the, the service of choice for the business community in NZ. Yeah, I think so. Oh, exciting. I mean, terrifying for a lot of network operators, a lot of, a lot of bandwidth going to a lot of places and a lot of decisions to be made about what routers to use, what firewalls to use, but you know, they're all, I guess, good problems to solve. Yeah, that probably ties in quite well with our piece on chip shortages. Yeah, yeah, good point. So look, we um we actually acquired a distributor of Huawei equipment called Connect Play, we being Lightwire um, a number of months back. And it's been really interesting to kind of dive into that world of hardware um supply. And understanding what is happening in that space, and we're just having a lot of ISPs. Um, I would say a lot. I mean, we're talking, you know, single figures, but certainly, um, you know, in the range of five to ten, who are saying that their existing supplier, um, Netcom's one that's definitely been mentioned, had initially said that uh, routers, um, residential gateways, mostly SME gateways, that uh, had DSL capability would be available in May. That's now been pushed back to September 2022. Even non-DSL versions, we're seeing pushbacks, um, date, dates being pushed back on delivery of those options. So it's it's kind of carnage out there. We actually just got in uh, our last shipment of the the Huawei DG router, which is a Ethernet DSL capable router. Um, we can't get that anymore, and the next version of that, uh, of like the next model up, won't be available for six months. So. Uh, yeah, logistics, chip shortages, it's, uh, it's a tough space. Yeah, and yeah, those, that are, those that can are stockpiling where possible because the, the, the future is so you know, uncertain. Yeah, it is. It's, um, I, I don't fully understand the causes. I know that there's um, been a drop in supply in, in some chip categories. I know that shipping is more expensive than ever. But I don't understand how all of that's going to be resolved in the near term. So 2022, certainly the first half of 2022 looks pretty pretty grim, really, from a um, logistics and supply standpoint. So that'll be fun to come back to. Um, I just want to go back to uh, looking at what MBN Co. is up to. Um, so in short, they're pissing off fiber carriers. That's what they're up to. Uh, because they're planning to create an Ethernet enterprise product geared towards data center backhaul requirements. And I think the general feeling is that MBN is moving past the initial aim of being a national infrastructure provider to succeed where the free market failed and is instead now focusing on where profits can be derived in the business space. 
And we, we did see the same. We saw the same with Chorus. Um, and that has actually been good for competition amongst carriers and has driven down the cost of those services. But I think the key difference is that in NZ, the, the core aim of the UFB rollout has been achieved. We've got fiber to the premise, um, services up to 10 gigs offered to the vast majority of NZ homes. MBN, on the other hand, has, I would say, delivered an inferior product and has not completed its rollout and yet is already diverting resources to other initiatives. I also saw on the news that um, they're doing a, a whole bunch of fiber to the premise upgrades for free, but can't tell anyone how many and where uh, that will occur. So again, just diversion of probably key resources to deliver on their initial um operational narrative has been diluted somewhat. Yeah. And I was actually listening to a comms day interview with the outgoing NBN chairman, and he really didn't hide from the fact that privatization of NBN is on the cards within you know a number of years. And that's, I think, what's quite hard for people to swallow is that um, a government-funded initiative is building out a network that's going to be um, probably free of a lot of regulation and certainly not, um, you know, that, that's going to use the advantageous position it's got building from the ground up to compete with other enterprises that haven't had that same opportunity. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. But for now, certainly diverging from the initial um, aim, you would think. Something that was actually really interesting, and I've, I've not had it really on my radar too much, um, but Bevan Slattery's latest, uh, well, who knows if it's his latest, he does so many things, but um, Hyper One um, is a project he's working on. And uh, in the little press release they had, it said Hyper One is a go phase 1A to build a diverse 2,300 kilometer loop connecting Australia's cloud alley, quote unquote, between Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne has commenced and will be ready uh, by December 2022. So the project in total is going to see 20,000 kilometers of fiber connect every capital with 2,000 on and off ramps for regional communities and it's been called Australia's first hyperscale network, which coincidentally, well, incidentally, is the first time I've used the term hyperscale used by someone other than Mike Jenkins from the instillery. So that's cool. It's catching on. Uh, good for you, Mike. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on what wholesale opportunities are going to exist over this network or the sales strategy behind it, but more capacity for more players can only be good. I think the key thing is this isn't an end um, like a last mile play. This is very much about um, creating genuine um, high grade capacity between as many centers as possible in Australia, which I would think uh, would be great in an era where people are wanting to do more remote work, um, you know, reduce congestion in cities. If we've got that kind of capacity, meaning that probably NBN last mile access in theory could be um, you know, higher speed and maybe even that whole CVC problem goes away in terms of MBM backhaul into regional backhaul. But again, early stage, don't know too much about it, but it's pretty exciting. Apparently Deloitte Access Economics said that the 1.5 billion network was expected to deliver more than to deliver more than 3 billion in direct economic benefits with much of that flowing to the regions. Last thing I've got in the news category uh, is that uh, we've got another undersea cable um, almost complete in this part of the world. Southern Cross, which already has the original um, the OG uh, Southern Cross cable says that the uh, Southern Cross Next cable, which uh, will expand Australia's global connectivity, carrying an additional 72 terabits of data per second in and out of the country, that is uh, has landed, I believe, and is going to go live in the first quarter of next year. Um, this one actually bypasses Hawaii, which means that uh, there 
is an option to kind of get smart about how you create your your capacity to um, the USA particularly. But, um, you know, getting rid of that single point of failure seems like a good idea. They had a quote, which I, I found interesting, saying that uh, the additional capacity is the equivalent of extreming more than 4.5 million Ultra HD 4K videos simultaneously. Um, for me, though, isn't that kind of a red herring because almost all of that content's served onshore, like it's all served out of Sydney typically? Yeah, or local locations, the exchanges in New Zealand, um, depending on where you're at. But again, I think it's all about adding capacity. The, the, the OG is, is maxed out. And this is what they have to do to, to scale up. Um, and with that introduction of, you know, Hawaki Nui coming in there, you know, they had to do something. They had to get ahead of the curve. So it'll be interesting to see what they can scale SX Next up to, though, um, as, as time goes, because I know, I know they have added a ridiculous amount of additional capacity to the already maxed out um, OG from its original spec. Slight inside line there with my wife's. Uh, father, so my father-in-law uh, actually being involved in the SX Next project. Oh, there you go, there you go. Um, yeah, I I think they got a lot more years out of it than they thought, didn't they? Than they thought yeah. they would. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's interesting. It's actually uh, what was what did I say? It was seventy-two terabits. So the Hawaii Nui cable that we discussed, uh, I think two weeks ago, that mm. uh, is going to provide two hundred and forty. So massively, you know, a lot bigger, a lot more capacity, but. Until that goes live, Southern Cross Next will be the largest uh, capacity route to connect Australia. Um, and it's also going to um, connect uh, Fiji, Tokelau, and uh, Kiribati. Kiribati. I don't know how to pronounce Kiribati. that. I need to, and there you go. Uh, Kiribati and Kiribati, two different places. Would have to refer to my good cousin, Google, uh, to, to tell you. Yes, we need to look that up. Um, uh, write in, let us know. Answers on the back of an envelope. Um, okay, cool. Uh, shall we move on and talk about MPS? Yes, let's do that. Woo! All right, NPS. I want to talk about whether it makes any sense as a defining metric. We know it's easy to measure. We know it produces a number you can track. It feels legitimate. Not legitimate. It feels legitimate. But have we all drunk the NPS Kool-Aid? So um, full disclaimer, I mean, full disclosure, we we use uh, NPS at uh, Lightwire. So, you know, it's not that we're, we're anti-NPS, but I think it's valuable sometimes to look at what it is we're using um, to define progress, to define success. And really think about, well, question it. Don't be scared to question things and whether or not they actually make sense. So in that vein, I recently read an article from 2017. So not too recent, but it was called "My Net Prom- uh, sorry, called Net Promoter Score Considered Harmful and What UX Professionals Can Do About It. It was by a guy called Jared M. Spool. Uh, and I found it pretty thought-provoking. Um, so then I jumped in and did a bit of a deep dive and found a range of other, other articles that, that had pretty, pretty similar sentiments. So look, just to you know, paint the picture, it's just in case anyone here has been under a rock and doesn't know what NPS is, um, Net Promoter Score or NPS has been around since 2003 when a marketing consultant named... Here's a quick plug for Lightwire. We made this podcast to really drive home the point that we are here to promote MSP growth and support our partners in unique and meaningful ways. 
If you're a new listener and don't know much about Lightwire, check out lightwirebusiness.com and get in touch if you think we may be able to help drive your business forward. Enough said, no one likes ads. Fred Reicheld? I'm going to say Reicheld. Fred Reicheld lit the business world on fire with a Harvard Business Review article called The Number You Need The One Number You Need to Grow. He asserted that by asking a single question, a question aimed at determining the organization's customer loyalty, management could take the pulse of their customers' feelings towards their business. And he ended that article with this number is the one number you need to grow. It's that simple and that profound. One number to rule them all. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Lord of the Rings nerd. The MPS uh, statistic falls between minus 100 and 100 with a score of minus 100 signifying that everyone in your sample is a detractor and a score of 100 signifying that everyone in your sample is a promoter. A score greater than zero signifies that there are more promoters than detractors and vice versa. So for the record, Lightwire has a score of 53 for our rural New Zealand services and 47 for our Australian and NZ business services. So um, we're doing okay. Um, by all accounts, anything over 50 is pretty sharp. So uh, we'll take that. But most business leaders you talk to will state that NPS and ENPS are key success metrics and things are no different at Lightwire. But the logic behind NPS, the way it's calculated, the questions asked, does any of it make sense? So realizing I'm doing a lot of talking here, Nick, mm. but um, <laughs> how about, normal. <laughs> how about I lead with the question? So, uh, you know, the question respondents are asked is a is super simple. It's a single question, as we've already stated. Um, how likely are you to recommend a company to a friend or colleague? Plain and simple, on an 11-point scale with zero marks as not at all likely and 10 marks as extremely likely. Respondents pick the number. They do. And uh, I guess the the formula is any nines and tens are considered promoters, seven or eights basically just excluded because they're passive, anything six and down, detractor. The formula to calculate the score is net promoter score equals percentage of respondents um, who are promoters, so that's your nine and tens, minus detractors, which is six or lower. I guess the question is, why not a median? And the weird maths, why they don't mm. pick a median, why they came up with that whole percentage of nines and tens minus percentage of six and under isn't super clear. And there's a problem with that. The problem is that let's say we have 10 respondent scores. The data is uh, 0014567891 and 10. The average of those numbers is five. So that sounds okay. But if we actually use the net promoter score maths, as 20% minus 60%, that gives you minus 40. So MPS tells us that a neutral score won't promote your business. So it needs to be considered a detractor and it just ends up making a, a much worse picture than a median would. And again, if you're not sure why the maths are being constructed that way, it's kind of confusing as to why we've all locked ourselves in. Mm. To put it another way, because I'm not sure that was super clear, if 10 people give us a zero, we get a minus 100% MPS score. So let's say that gives our dev team, design team, product team, whoever else, a real kick in the ass and they make some great improvements. And those same 10 people, a few months later, give us a score of six. Our MPS score is still minus 100. And I feel like if we're using this as a key benchmark metric, shouldn't we be using something that's, I guess, sensitive enough to those changes allows them to be reflected because what we see in that situation is that we haven't done enough to make those people promoters. 
So that's that's fine, but it provides no insights into year-on-year improvement. Like how is how is six equal to a zero? That's what and kind how, of and, gets and me. if everyone gave you an eight, you know, your MPS score would still work out to be zero. Yeah. So which says you you've got an equal amount of detractors as promoters, I guess, at that point, when really everyone's giving you an eight, which sounds pretty damn good to me. Yeah. And I think if you're <laughs> there's ways to play off the numbers too, right? And I think this is the other thing. It's actually something I think a lot of people are aware of because when I posted our numbers for MPS on LinkedIn, a lot of people said, yeah, but when you're asking that question, are you asking that when they're new customers, when they've just bought from you? Are you asking a selected subset of customers? People can play with the numbers. Um, and the, the question as well, an 11-point scale makes each answer very hard to interpret. So a three-point scale is you know, yes, no, uh, maybe. Um, a five-point scale would even give us clearer insights. But one person's six is another person's eight. You know, have you ever picked a, a seven instead of an eight? And if so, why? Could you explain that? It's a hard one to quantify. It's a bit like golf, you know. Sometimes you you, you just have that feeling. It's a seven or it's an eight iron. <laughs> you don't know the distance. You just you just know that gut feeling that I'll get it on the green. And some people probably just pick sevens over eights. I guess the other thing here is another point I made is should we ask about the future or the past? So. Um, mm. in this article, they talked about how Netflix said, have you recommended a friend or family member to Netflix in the last, uh, 12 months or six months? I can't remember the, the phrase, but, um, that, that gives you proof of observed behavior. What we're asking about is like, would you, or will you, um, we all say we're going to do lots of things, but the things we have done count more. And I guess the extra part to this is when you say you will, we need to understand why. What are your drivers? Um, and yeah, so I think we can't derive much from even a, a single number if we don't understand the drivers behind that number. And I think, again, we can as a business be quite good at just assuming, oh, we did this thing this year and that's why it's going up. But, you know, it's it's not very scientific. Um, the response rate as well, right? Like we... We got 30%, I think, response rate on our rural, rural survey um, last year. But if you get 30% responding, what do the other 70% think? And, and how do you take that into account? Yeah, I think engagement is such a critical one to measure as well because you, know, you want those people engaged with your business. They're going to be probably buying off you more frequently. But depending on your industry and what you're selling and the, and, and the frequency of that, that's a hard one to, I guess, include in a formula, um, it'd be too subjective, but it would be nice to, I guess, uh, you know, perhaps see in the fine detail of, of what makes up someone's NPS score is their engagement rate. Mm. Yeah. It'd be quite transparent. Yeah, just, just for transparency. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the follow-up question is, is really where the value is. Um, because the follow-up question is what's going to give us that answer I, I referred to before, which is the driver behind the number you gave the number's fine, but the driver. So can you explain uh, why you gave the number you did? So I think it's it's it, when we try and derive NPS or an NPS score, there's got to be a second question that follows up to it because a single number to define customer experience loyalty is always going to be flawed. Um, I think in writing this, I realized that the only real key benefit of NPS as a, as a model, because I'm sure there's a number of other models, is the fact that so many businesses have adopted this that it gives us, even though we're all playing to a weird, weird set of rules, 
they're the same set of rules for everyone, albeit again, that people can have different sample sizes, ask the question to different customer segments at different times. So there's, there's maybe not quite the same rules, but by and large, at least the formula is the same for everyone. So when we get this number, we can look to the company over there in the same industry and go, oh yeah, we're doing all right. Or, oh, we're not so great. That's really the benefit. Yeah. I think it, it ties in well because a single number, you know, not a great measure, but everyone does like to use the latest and greatest. So hence why we've, we've landed on MPS. But, you know, if we look back at perhaps uh, CSATs or customer satisfaction scores, which were around, you know, long before MPS ever existed. Um, and I guess for those that don't know what CSAT is, um, that is basically the how would you rate the overall satisfaction with the goods or service you received? Uh, kind of question that you get after an engagement, um, you know, and perhaps a support ticket, um, given that most of our um, listeners are potentially MSPs or engaged with their IT departments. Um, the respondents would usually uh, rank them on the old one to five scale, one being very unsatisfied through to five very satisfied, three being neutral. And then I, I guess I'll break it down how that actually works because it's probably worth uh, just comparing how the how the calculations work. So, uh, the results can be averaged out to give a, a composite customer satisfaction score. And those CSAT scores are usually expressed as a percentage scale, uh, 100% being total customer satisfaction and zero being uh, total customer dissatisfaction. Though I do expect if you had zeros all the way through, you might not have any customers left. To do this, uh, only responses of four satisfied and five very satisfied are included in the calculation. This has been shown that using the two highest values on feedback surveys is the most accurate predictor of customer retention. So the mathematical formula, number of satisfied customers, fours and fives, divided by the number of survey responses, times 100 equals percentage of satisfied customers. So again, taking into account that engagement rate. And that, that tells us something very different to net promoter score, right? Which is um, how happy are people right now if the experience they've just had versus, you know, how likely are they to promote us in future or to, to advocate on our behalf? Yeah, it's measuring that, that short-term loyalty and experience versus that, um, I guess, long-term customer loyalty and happiness in the business as a whole, that, that NPS uh, delivers. And there's, I guess to, to summarize, there's, there's nothing wrong with either of those. They're great, but neither one is a, a single source of truth. We need to, to be looking to gain insights in a number of places and flesh out the reasons behind the scores that were given. And yeah. I think the only thing that, that goes against all of this is probably customer burnout from being asked to rate every single experience they have with every single company they engage with at every single point through the customer journey to the point that everyone's probably had enough. I think we need to keep in mind that we touched on before that, that the you know um, NPS is a single metric. What could we do if we combined NPS and CSAT? Uh, if we did that, then uh, you know the survey results would help compare the scores before and after impl- implementing those changes across the business because we've got that short-term and the long-term uh, metrics there to work from. Ultimately, uh, by combining those two, you're going to see better customer outcomes. Uh, you're going to see your business grow greater, and you know I guess immediate actions on on those negative responses um, to keep your customers happy. And I guess that would flow through to MPS detractors being slightly less in the long run. 
Done. All right. Well, let's leave MPS and by association CSAT there for this week. Nick, thanks for joining me. Uh, we are available individually on LinkedIn. Uh, Nick Phillips, two L's uh, on LinkedIn um, or Nick at insightsasaservice.fm. Brendan at insightsasaservice.fm. Uh, Brendan Ritchie, of course, on LinkedIn. If you've got any insights, any ideas, any suggestions, any feedback, anything you can teach us about NPS or CSAT, would love to hear it. Uh, this is also, I should say, the last episode for the year. Uh, so thank you, everyone who has uh, tuned in for the last couple of months. It's been fun to kick this off. Look forward to catching you all in 2022 for more guests, more news, more opinions. We'll see you then. <laughs>